Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, still no winner in the U.S. election. What states are left and which way they're going to go? Well, we'll talk about it. Ontario budget comes down later on today. We're going to find out just exactly how the Ontario government is going to deal with COVID-19. And it's been about a year now since the city of Hamilton declared a climate emergency. But is it lagging in its strategy? We'll talk about that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The U.S. election, uh, which is yet to be decided. Uh, the counting is continuing, much to the chagrin, I guess, of uh, some of the Donald Trump supporters. Uh, still no winner, though. Biden sitting at 264, Donald Trump at 214 Electoral College votes. Uh, what states are left? Which way is this going to go? Is it going to end today? Got a lot of questions. I don't know that we have a whole lot of answers on this, but we're going to try to uh, find out what we can about this uh, with our next guest. Uh, Capri Escafero is a former Ohio senator, uh, now, of course, uh, an executive in residence at American University School and a commentator on political activities uh, in the uh, U.S. media. Uh, Capri, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Absolutely. Good morning. Thank you so much. Well, maybe you could add some some clarity to what's going on. First of all, before we do that, maybe from a, a, a an overview standpoint, uh, your reaction to what's happened over the last three days? Uh, honestly, none of it is really surprising me. In 2020, I think we have to learn to expect the unexpected. And, you know, we, we, um, we've been talking for weeks, if not months, about the high volume of early voting, whether it's in-person voting, vote by mail, um, you know, absentee ballots. And so the fact that we've had such a high volume of, of mail-in and early absentee ballots all across the country with record turnout, um, you know, does not surprise me. And that is contributing to the slow count right now, uh, just because there's such a high volume all across the country in a number of these states. And state law in some of these, in some of the individual states, um, does not allow for ballots to even start to be processed or counted until, you know, the polls close or at least until election day. So, um, you know, I, I would say that while this is, I did not expect it to be a landslide one way or the other. I think what we are seeing is, you know, competitiveness all across the country, um, uh, signaling, uh, you know, a, a changing, not necessarily demographic shift, but a, a demographic, um, literal like relocation people moving across the country younger people more diversity in new places like georgia like arizona and and that's that's changing the electoral college map uh you know the the conduct coming out of of, of president trump and his campaign not surprising either uh you know multiple court cases challenges uh bluster um you know i think we've come to expect that from him as well and i don't say that as a partisan i think we can point to, you know, a number of, of aspects of his conduct, um, not just over the last several years, but over the last, you know, 24 to 48 hours that, that point to that. So, um, you know, it's it's very, you know, contentious right now. It's It's been a very tense time here south of the border. And and I know that the um, our neighbors in Canada, as well as our allies across the globe, are feeling it, too. Everybody. Uh, obviously, you know, we're all looking at this because this is going to have a huge impact on the international scene to do with NATO, to do with international trade. I mean, there's so many ramifications to this. That's but to, right. to the to the vote counting cap, uh, does it bother you the characterization that Trump and his, his acolytes are, are, are mentioning, saying they're finding new Joe Biden ballots? These are ballots that have been legitimately cast. Uh, they just, as you mentioned, can't count them until after the other stuff is done. This is This is all part of the legitimate process, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I can say that with, with a great deal of, of, of confidence, um, as someone who 
served 10 years as a state legislator, uh, you know, four of those years as minority leader in the Ohio Senate. And here in the United States, it is the individual states that have jurisdiction over election law and the process that surrounds it. And so, you know, that's why we see a patchwork, why certain places, you know, are processing ballots faster than others. Um, you know, the Supreme Court in the United States had what people thought was a conflicting ruling between Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, for example, on when they could, you know, how long they could wait to count ballots when they were mailed in. And the reason why that was, was, was because the, the court upheld the individual state laws that were already on the books. Wisconsin said you have to be in by election day, that's it, or you don't get counted. Whereas Pennsylvania's law on the books says we accept any ballots and we count them up to a certain number of days as long as they're postmarked by election day itself. In Ohio, where I'm from, if it's postmarked by election day, you have 10 days to count those ballots if they're received as long as they're postmarked election day. So again, it's a patchwork. This is what happens. This is literally people over counting ballots. We have good public servants across this country. These ballots are not falling from the sky. The issue here is that they can't necessarily start to count them in advance because of the individual state laws. And there's such a high volume of them because of the pandemic. And because I think a lot of people, frankly, were also worried about the mail, we do have mail-in ballots but uh, that are counted in all of this, but we also have early absentee ballots where people would go to different boards of elections in their areas or they would drop a ballot in a drop box in uh, local libraries or county offices. And all of those are counted in these, you know, these uh, early votes. And there's just such a high volume of them. And so because of that, it's just a longer process. This, this is not a cabal. Um, it's just, you know, we just have to be patient. Uh, which is a virtue we know, uh, and it's uh, something not easily, I guess, acquired by some people. Uh, but when there's the characterization that this is all a hoax, and we've been hearing that really, well, going all the way back to the last election, I guess, except that he won that one, uh, that, that does nothing except ignite the frustration and the anger of, of, of both sides here. It's, it's, the election itself now has become very polarizing, uh, and we've seen demonstrations, uh, you know, well, even yesterday mm-hmm. in Detroit, people saying stop the vote. It's, it's like stop the stop the count in Michigan, but st- keep counting in in, uh, keep in counting Pennsylvania in and in Arizona. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I I know he probably has some very smart lawyers at the White House right now, but you can't have it both ways, can you? Uh, no, you can't. I mean, you know, obviously they're trying, but I mean, what we're seeing is that they're saying, "Well, stop the vote in a place like Pennsylvania," because you know, right now he is ahead, and the outstanding ballots are coming from you know, Democratic strongholds um, and more likely to be favoring Joe Biden. Conversely, in a place like Arizona or maybe Nevada, where things are a little bit more narrow, Joe Biden is ahead. Um, uh, They're saying keep counting because we want to find Donald Trump votes in those areas. And, you know, maybe there's outstanding ballots that can help, um, you know, at least put those states in play. So it, it really is a level of desperation. And it is sad. I will say this again, not as a partisan but as an American, and I would say for any of us, again, allies, I've talked a lot of, um, to a lot of media outlets all around the world, um, particularly in a number of our, our allied nations, English-speaking nations as well. Uh, and, and it just it is, it's very disheartening because we are supposed to be a beacon of, of democracy. We are supposed to show a peaceful transfer of power. We are supposed to reflect um, you know, the ideals 
of, of what happens in a representative democracy. Instead, what we're seeing is, you know, that uh, someone uh, that is the leader of our nation sowing doubt in the fundamental building blocks of what makes the United States function, which is a peaceful transfer of power, which is, you know, people going to the polls and choosing their, their elected leaders that represent them um, all, at every level of government. And when you see, when you, when you, when you place doubt in that process, you're placing doubt in the fundamental tenets of American democracy. And, and that is not a good look, <laughs> to say the least. But if you're going to go before the courts, and they've already filed some, some injunctions, I guess, or tried to anyway, mm -hmm. uh, about some of these things, you can't just say, I, I think the results suck, I, you better stop doing this. I mean, you have to have a legal reason to do this, don't you, Knight? I mean, I, I know that yeah. he's floating the idea again about these are illegal ballots, or you know, the, the, the Democrats have flooded this, and which, which we know is not true. Uh, but the courts are going to have to hear some legitimate arguments. I mean, because I know, as you mentioned, in the case of Pennsylvania, twice now, uh, that's gone before the court, and, and they upheld the ruling that said, yeah, you guys can do it the way you've always done it and the way you're planning on doing it this year. So to overturn that, you pretty much have to bring some sort of evidence that's going to substantiate their claims that there's something illegal going on here. Right. I mean, this is you're absolutely correct. And, and you don't really even need to be a lawyer to, to come up with that concept. Right. I mean, you can't just I mean, you can try to, you know, file a lawsuit. Will it be successful? Will it be rejected? Yes, you'll have standing because you're you know, you're a candidate there or it's the you know, the Republican Party is usually the, the people that actually, um, you know, go and, and try to um, lay these claims in court. So you, what they're trying to say right now is there's in, in certain places they're saying that they're not able to get access to actually um, observe the voting in, in certain jurisdictions. I think that's what they're trying to say in Michigan. Um, I think that's what they're trying to say in Pennsylvania right now as well. Um, that, well, Pennsylvania, they're once again trying to, to challenge the, you know, when you can count the ballots and if those ballots are, are, are legit. Um, I think they're trying to do that in Georgia. So they're trying to make this argument right now that either votes are being counted that should not be counted because somehow they have fallen out of the, um, you know, election uh, law time. Um, you know, and, and look, there are numbers of people in those rooms, Democrats and Republicans, that are looking at irregularities, signature verification, uh, you know, all of those things. I mean, there are three or four different types of, of you know, um, sort of stop gaps that go through this process. Each state has them. And a number of the states now, they have, um, you know, I think I saw yesterday in Arizona, um, the, there are full glass windows you can look in. The, uh, Pennsylvania has it live streamed, okay, <laughs> on the Internet, these counting rooms. So they're saying, well, we can't get close enough to see the ballots. And so, you know, they're going to go back and forth. Um, but, you know, this isn't really the Supreme Court that you can't just, as you just said, you can't just say, hey, Supreme Court, stop it because we don't like it. You have to bring a legitimate claim because they are essentially the last resort court of appeals in the United States. Um, and unlike, you know, we, we think about, uh, I think, globally, Bush versus Gore and what happened 20 years ago in the Supreme Court, quote unquote, determining that race. But what happened in, in Bush versus Gore was specific to stopping the recount in Florida. Yeah. And that was, you know, 537 votes or, or there, thereabouts. And so they basically said, let's just stop the bleeding Supreme Court, they, we've gone through counting all these ballots so many times, we're going to stop it. At that point, those 537 votes or whatever it was, 
um, gave George W. Bush Florida and that won the presidency. So, um, you know, that that's what that's what role the Supreme Court played um, 20 years ago, which is very specific and very different than anything that we're seeing right now, because even in places where there's recounts um, that they're trying, like Wisconsin, we're talking about 40,000 vote differences, not 500. By the way, we should also mention that that, uh, that ruling in 2000, 20 years ago, the Bush-Gore, uh, that's the only time in American history that the Supreme Court has actually uh, been involved in, in, in an election of this that magnitude. That is correct. That's uh, right. uh, so it's not as if there's a, a, a precedent here. So, I mean, they're, they're trying to break new ground here. The, the speculation at this point, uh, Capri, is, look, you know, apparently we're going to get some results from Nevada later on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if Biden wins that six votes, uh, that's 270, which should mean game over. But I'm guessing it's not going to be game over. It's not going to be game over for for a whole host of reasons. I mean, we're still I think they're they're still waiting really to to ensure that Arizona is really, you know, Joe Biden is leading in Arizona. He is leading in 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 Nevada. Um, You know, there are still, you know, a couple hundred thousand ballots still outstanding in Arizona um, that are being counted. My understanding from hearing the secretary of state in Arizona right now that those are ballots that were like dropped in drop boxes. So it's, it's kind of hard to determine where some of these, you know, votes have come from, mm-hmm. but the anticipation is that that vote that will continue to hold same thing with Nevada. If that happens, then, you know, that's enough. That's 270. Um, there's great speculation at this point that Joe Biden has made up enough ground and will continue to do so because there's still enough outstanding ballots uh, across Pennsylvania um, to flip Pennsylvania to Joe Biden. And if that's the case, that's game over, too. Um, you know, uh, North Carolina is still outstanding, but that's likely to go to Trump. Georgia is quickly um, shrinking the um, Donald Trump's lead. But I would um, anticipate I mean, that's going to be litigated, I think, quite a bit as well. But ultimately, you know, it, Donald Trump can win Nevada and, and North Carolina, and it doesn't matter at all if, you know, if Joe Biden has a decisive win in these other states. Now, there are states like Nevada, for example, you can bring a lawsuit and challenge an election no matter what. If you're the party, like, you know, you don't have to be, for example, in, uh, and you can de- demand recounts there. So they're pretty liberal with how, you know, demanding recounts in Nevada and like Wisconsin, it has to be under 1%. They did it in 2016. Hillary Clinton did it. And all that ended up happening actually was that um, Donald Trump got like an extra like 150 some votes. Um, we're talking about a margin of at least, uh, I believe it's like 42,000 in, in Wisconsin right now. So um, it's recounts are not going to make up the amount. Again, this isn't Florida where you're looking at 500 votes. We're looking at tens of thousands in many instances. What's the time frame on this? Let's let's assume that he hits the 270, and, and as you say, I mean Pennsylvania's back in play now too with some of the the returns that they're getting now. Uh, so that may or may not happen. But if there's going to be litigation, uh, I mean, obviously we know inauguration day is not until the third week of January. But uh, there is another time frame uh, where the states actually have to report their final numbers, and that's what right. three and a half weeks. That's right. So um, that because they have to actually have the electors and the electoral yeah. college go and vote the electoral college so yeah you we have it it's it's basically in about three weeks it's like mid-december um that that needs to be done most states you know these they have unofficial results until they actually certify them so again even in states that have been obviously called place like ohio that you know trump won by eight and a half points we won't have certified results until 
you know, a couple weeks because that's mm-hmm. just how we roll here. Um, <laughs> and many states are like that. So, you know, we're we really have to get it together now. Again, Bush versus Gore. I think that 20 years ago that Supreme Court case came down like the 10th of December or something of, of that nature. There is a possibility that we could end up at the tie. It's not out of the realm of possibility, 269, 269, which is a nightmare scenario. You know, if somehow we end up with, um, with if, if Trump how, somehow pulls it out in Arizona and Nevada, um, you know, we, we could end up with the 269, 269 scenario. And in that case, what happens is, is that the House of Representatives votes for the president and the Senate votes for the vice president. And the, the interesting thing about this is that even though the House is controlled by Democrats, it's not voted by individual people. It's actually voted by um, state uh, delegations. So in so each individual state, so some states, you know, have more Democratic congressmen than Republicans, but more states have more Republican congressmen than Democrats, which means that individual state is controlled by Republicans in their delegation, meaning that in that case, it would be more likely than not that Donald Trump would win. So, I mean, it's unlikely, but we, we got you got to run the trap. Yeah, so exactly. It's out there. It's out there. <laughs> <laughs> and changing by the minutes, it seems. Anyway, Capri, thank yes, you so too. much. It was great to have you on the program today to get your perspective really on this. And as they say, it ain't over till it's over, and it's ain't over yet. So we'll uh, hopefully be in touch again. Thanks so much for this today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Capri Cafaro, of course, a former Ohio senator and now, of course, TV commentator and uh, ex- executive in residence at the American University School. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Very busy day here in the province of Ontario. The Ford government will uh, unveil their budget later on this afternoon. Now, we don't know all the details, of course. They lock up the uh, media coverage uh, folks that are down at Queen's Park right now so they can't get word out until the budget is actually produced. Uh, so they're there chowing down on sandwiches and uh, going over the analysis of what's going on. But we can speculate about what they might be doing. And to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Sabrina Nanji, who is with Queen's Park today. Uh, Sabrina, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill. The pandemic rages on. Uh, it's, it's you know, what are we going to do? How much are we going to spend? This is uh, These are different times for any government that's trying to put a budget forth, aren't they? Yeah, and, and, you know, we're hearing that, uh, you know, what they've teased so far with the budget we're going to see from Queen's Park later today is, is uh, you know, this is no ordinary budget. There's a lot of uncertainty in these pandemic times. Um, you know, this budget is already, uh, you know, months delayed. It was initially supposed to be tabled in March, but because COVID just sort of uh, threw, you know, uh, financial plans out of the water, uh, the, the government had to delay it. Um, so we're getting a, a full-scale budget today, actually, I should add that the uh, there's a premier's guarantee, so the finance minister and the premier actually were docked um, about 10% of their, their salary um, because they tabled the budget late. So, you know, no one wanted to table the budget late. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, but it seems like it won't answer all the questions today, this budget. Uh, for one, there's, this, there's a legal requirement that when the province runs a deficit, uh, which, you know, is right now a record-shattering um, $38.5 billion dollars, uh, because of the pandemic, um, you know, they, they're supposed to show a path to balance, but that won't be, or at least a timeline for getting back to, back into the black. And 
that won't be included in this budget. Uh, the finance minister says we might have to wait till next spring for that, but at least they'll lay out three different economic scenarios, you know, based on the uncertainty, which is sort of, a, I, I believe this is the first time that we've ever seen a budget like that um, in, in Ontario. So a lot of uncertainty, I think a lot of questions. Um, they said that this is not going to be um, a good news budget. Some of the fun nuggets that we saw last year from the Ford government's budget, you know, a buck of beer, uh, rebranded license plates that are no longer um, no yeah, longer that in, out, yeah. in, uh, going on cars and area now. But, you know, that, that stuff won't be in this budget. It's more going to be about how we get back to balance. Uh, maybe starting to lay that out is what I'll be looking for. Um, and we're expecting, you know, uh, more funding for health, more funding for long-term care. Uh, I think the opposition will be looking for whether enough, whether it's enough, whether that's adequate. But you know, it, I think it'll be a lot different from last year's budget, which the Ford government had a lot of backlash over. If if you'll recall, there were um, cuts to public health, which I don't yeah. think you know in the middle of a pandemic is going to happen. Those cuts were eventually reversed, but. Um, that budget had a lot of backlash. The the former finance minister, Vic Fideli, was, was demoted shortly after. And uh, Rod, so today we'll be seeing the first uh, full-scale budget from Rod Phillips. Um, you know, he was uh, shuffled into the finance minister role last spring. And, you know, it's more than a year later. And, and we're finally getting to see a budget from him. So it's, it's an exciting day. We've got pizza on order for lunch. There you uh, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be exciting. To that point, though, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, uh, because, uh, you know, you, you mentioned some of the cuts that they made last year, including some health care stuff. They also made some significant cuts to long-term care last year, uh, including, of course, uh, they, they essentially eliminated, uh, you know, the, the oversight portion of, of what they were supposed to be doing there, and they've taken a lot of heat for that. Now, the Premier's already committed more than once that he's going to do something about this and try to fix this system. Can we expect to see uh, some commitment to long-term care? I mean, I know they, they've, they've got a recruitment drive going on right now because they know they need more staff. That's part of it, but the, this is going to take some money, and, uh, and I think a lot of people there or people that have loved ones in those facilities are going to be listening today to see, okay, what are you going to do about it? In other words, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I mean, the finance minister has, you know, already sort of teased that long-term care will be, you know, feature very prominently. It's, it's, we're expecting that it's going to be a centerpiece of this budget, and they've already kind of teased some, some of the, some of the provisions. So, uh, you know, a, a raise for personal support workers, you know, three dollars mm-hmm. an hour raise. Uh, it, uh, it's not as much as they were receiving, you know, during the first wave, which was four dollars an hour. The opposition isn't happy about that, but they're hoping that, you know, that that will help the recruitment that they're trying to do. They've already said that, you know, they want to go to an average of four hours of daily direct care for each resident every day. Um, you know, that that will require more funding. Um, we were told that, you know, to expect the funding plan for that, but that won't that the goal is to do that by 2024. So that's that's a little down the line. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the real question with long-term care and the health funding side of things, I think, is is will it be adequate? And, and the finance minister sort of, he's, you can kind of see his line is that you know we're going to pay for what is necessary is what he said yesterday, and and so I think it it will be uh, you know whether or not it's adequate, how much is it? And you know this government they uh, they came to power you know promising to balance the books. And we're seeing, you know, polling even today from Abacus Data suggesting that, you know, Ontarians, this pandemic, no one, no one really cares about an austerity budget. You know, even, uh, you know, conservative folks 
fiscal conservatives who might, you know, like that type of thing. Um, maybe that's why they like the, the conservative government here. You know, even they are shying away from that. They, I think, spend like animals is kind of the message from the public <laughs> right now. So the, you know, because you know, a lot of people want to see the economy recover. A lot of people are struggling right now. Uh, you know, people are willing to, uh, you know, shell out the big bucks. To, to get us, you know, back to where we should be. So I think uh, it, it might be a tough budget for the for the Ford government and especially the premier. You know, he's he hasn't been happy with a lot of uh, a lot of restrictions. You know, he he's been disappointed that this has thrown off plans to balance the budget. Um, so I, I think there will be there will be a lot of questions, but it's also a matter of like how much. I think you know the the NDP uh, and the Liberals, uh, the Greens, the opposition parties. They're saying that. They've, they've been putting out their budget asks this week, you know, what they're expecting, what they would like from the government. And it's all about, you know, just uh, spending and, and spending adequately to the levels. Uh, I think, you know, some of the announcements, uh, the PSW pay raise and, you know, funding for an average of four hours of care, you know, down the line. Those, the opposition is already saying that's not good enough. And uh, so, so we'll see. You know, I think we're in the midst of a second wave. This is going to be a, a sobering budget. Uh, it's going to be, I guess, the, the between a rock and a hard place budget, too, because you're right. I mean, no matter what they do today, I'm going to go out on a limb here today and suggest that the Liberals and the NDP aren't going to like what he's done, going to do today. <laughs> I, I know it's never happened before with a budget presentation, but I kind of think it might this time. But it, but he's getting some heat, as you mentioned, from some of the other core supporters, too, notwithstanding the fact that, as you mentioned in the polling that was released yesterday, uh, 72% of people that identify themselves as supporters of the government uh, say, yeah, spend, 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 do what you need to do, which is highly unusual for for small c conservatives especially with fiscal responsibility uh and 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 so they've they're going to get it from the right they're going to get it from the left no matter what they do uh but uh, on the other hand if they come up short in the middle of a pandemic they're going to get it from everybody yeah the key the key word from the finance minister is you know a prudent approach that he says that ontario is now in the position to be able to uh you know fund the things that we need. And he says it's because, you know, the PCs have taken a, what he calls a prudent approach. You know, they, they, they phrase it as, uh, you know, efficiencies and that type of thing. The, the opposition calls it cuts. Uh, so I guess, you know, that just depends on your vantage point there. But yeah, you know, there's, there's also questions about the financial accountability officer. The, the, our budget watchdog has said that there's a structural deficit. So basically, post-pandemic, you know, after the pandemic, the province will have a $14 billion annual deficit, like after, you know, we're coming out of of the the brunt of COVID-19. So I'm going to be looking for how the government plans to address that. You know, uh, that's that's a huge deficit. And um, you can't really just rely on a rosy economic outlook, sort of a the economy will fix itself type of thing, right? So I think uh, that's going to be one thing that, that I'll be looking out for. Well, and let's you know not be naive about this. This this is going to be some short term and long term pain, I guess. When on the other side of this thing too, and I know yesterday uh, uh, at the uh, daily briefing there, the prime, the premier rather, and the and the finance minister, Mr. Phillips, was there with the the premier. They're pretty evasive uh, when you guys in the press corps were asking, okay, what's the what's the long term plan? What's the what's the recovery plan? Uh, I don't know if they've got one yet, but uh, it's it's going to be tough. I mean. You know, I, I know the, the the polling says, look, we don't want government layoffs. We don't want you to start cutting expenses that way. Uh, but down the road, they're going to have to make some pretty tough decisions. Yeah, and, and they, they really have two options, right? It's either cuts, um, which, you know, they've gotten a lot of backlash for. Uh, it's, no one really seems like they're saying it's the right time for cuts 
we're in the middle of a pandemic, or the other option is to increase your revenue. They've promised no taxes, you know, no tax increases, I should say. Uh, you know, that's something that the court is loath to do. So uh, there, there might, they might have to get creative for that. Uh, one thing that we're hearing, um, you know, uh, there have been reports about potentially, you know, non-necessarily COVID stuff, but they're allowing, um, potentially going to allow, you know, private companies into the uh, online gambling market, which is, you know, essentially only OLG, the government-run agency, has has a spot in that. So, you know, the government might be able to pick up some, uh, you know, some cash because of uh, offshore offshore gambling that people might be doing online uh, and that type of thing. So allowing private retailers into the government-controlled, you know, gambling, online gambling market, that might be a way that, that they can boost revenue because there's really, there's really limited options for that, right? Like raising taxes is kind of the, the main thing, but these guys, I don't think, are, are, are wanting to do that at all. That's what they've promised. Um, I guess we'll, we'll see, but no, I can't imagine that, that that's going to be the case of raising taxes. So, so they might have to get creative to figure out how to, you know, put, make a dent in this gigantic deficit. Well, we'll be watching for your reporting on it later on today, obviously, once uh, the uh, hounds are released and the media can go back over to the uh, <laughs> to the building there uh, in, in the galleries and see exactly what they're going to present. Sabrina, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you today. Thanks so much. Take care. Sabrina Nanji, of course, with Queen's Park today. So what kind of pressures are they under, and, and just how do you steer through the choppy waters of a pandemic. Those are some of the challenges that uh, the finance minister, uh, Minister Phillips, is going to be facing today. And what are others going to be looking for in this budget today? To that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Jasmine Moulton, who is the Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, in uh, this province. Uh, Jasmine, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Well, thanks for having me. What are your expectations when the, the minister rises in, uh, in uh, Queen's Park today and delivers this budget? The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is looking for three specific things today. Uh, tax cuts, not just holding the line on taxes, but tax cuts. Uh, plan to reduce non-essential government spending. And also some sort of fiscal anchor or guideline on when the government plans to return the budget to balance. So those are the three things. Just off the top, though, as I mentioned, uh, tax cuts, um, because your previous guest was talking about, uh, you know, the, how are they going to eliminate this deficit? Yeah. Uh, this government said that their focus is to help people get back on their feet and help get people back to work. But let me be clear, the single best way to help people get back onto their feet is to reduce their single largest expense in the average Canadian household, which is taxes. About 45% of the average Canadian family's income last year went to taxes at different levels of government. So that's a lot of money. And if, you know... We've given a lot of handouts to people, but if the government's scraping back, you know, close to 45% of it, uh, we need to scratch our heads and say, you know, give people a break. Uh, it's a tough, tough economic year. We need to give them a break on taxes. That's the, the balancing problem, I guess, every government has, but certainly in, in, in tough, time, tough times like a pandemic. Uh, because, you know, as, as we were just talking about, Jasmine, I mean, they're, they're also looking at revenue generation, uh, which is pretty much dried up for just about every level of government during a pandemic. And you figure, okay, you know, where are we going to get the cash for this? And then you start looking at that big deficit number that's down there. And and I know, you know, the finance minister and the, and the premier are both saying, don't look at that number. Don't, we'll get to that later. But you can't help but see it. And it's there. And you know that it's ballooning. And at some point, we're going to have to pay the piper. 
Well, this this government was quick to shut down businesses it deemed, quote, non-essential. Um, but the government itself continued on as if it were business as usual. Um, this year, actually, Doug Ford is giving out a 1% raise government-wide. So we've got millions of bureaucrats, you know, across the province that are getting a raise while millions of taxpayers have been laid off. And government employee compensation is actually the single largest area of government expenditure. It accounts for about 50%, um, which is half of what the Ontario government spends every year. So the biggest fallacy that you'll hear um, from, you know, big spending apologists is what program would you cut? Where would you, you know, what would you cut? Healthcare, education? You don't have to cut a program, but if you just contain the growth in government employee compensation, um, you're already halfway ahead of the game. Like I said, the this raise that Doug Ford is handing out this year, which there's no excuse for when Ontario is broke, this raise is going to cost taxpayers $720 million. And government uh, employees in Ontario already have a 10% wage premium um, over their counterparts in the private sector, comparable counterparts. So I think that that's the main area where Doug Ford has an opportunity to find savings, and we'd encourage him to do that now. Well, we just had a discussion on the program yesterday. As I'm sure you're aware, uh, Jasmine, there's a, a movement right now in the Canadian Senate to freeze salaries of, of, of not just senators but members of parliament as well and everybody who works up on the Hill that just said, look, these are difficult times and everybody would love to get a raise. Certainly they would, but this is just not the right time. Now, I don't know where that motion's going to go. Uh, she seems to think that she's got some all-party support for that and then it's going to have to go back to the House of Parliament. But that's the mindset I think people are looking for from our elected representatives right now. You're asking us to tighten our belts we've had to do it anyway uh what are you guys doing and that's that's a legitimate question so the canadian taxpayers federation had a petition on to um stop politicians on parliament hill from taking a pay raise which guess what they went ahead with it they gave themselves a pay raise already this year around the same time that uh Justin Trudeau raised taxes in the middle of a pandemic. He raised the carbon tax on April 1st. It wasn't an April Fool's joke. We thought maybe it was. But no, he raised taxes in April while giving all of the MPs on Parliament Hill who earn already, you know, high into the six figures, um, he gave them a raise. So there's a fundamental disconnect between government and people working outside of government. 90% of the COVID-19 job losses happened outside the world of government in Ontario. Um, And then we see government employees taking, you know, a pay raise this year. There's a discord and we all are in this together, government employees too. And I think that leadership needs to start at the top. So Doug Ford absolutely uh, should take, well, he took a pay cut because he delivered the budget a little bit later. But I think every single politician in Canada, not just in Ontario, should take a pay cut so that they're setting the tone for what they're about to do, which is tackle this massive bureaucratic bloat uh, in Ontario and at the federal level as well. Well, it makes you wonder sometimes, though, doesn't it, Jasmine, whether or not they actually have windows in those offices at Queen's Park so they can look out and see what we're doing and and how this is impacting us? Uh, (laughs) You'd like to have a little bit of that empathy, I think, when when you see the numbers going back and forth like that. And it it hasn't been forthcoming in the past. Maybe maybe today it'll happen. I don't know. Uh, As always, uh, great to hear from you and uh, and the Ontario Forces uh, for the Ontario Taxpayers Federation. I'm sure that uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about after uh, Minister Phillips delivers his numbers later on today, and uh, we'll uh, get some analysis about the impact it's going to have. Thanks so much for this, Jasmine. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Thank you.
Take care. Jasmine Moulton, of course, the Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It has been about a year now since the city of Hamilton declared a climate emergency. You remember that headline? We talked about it extensively uh, when city council made that determination. But how's it going? Well, there was an update yesterday uh, that uh, was not very encouraging. It's been about a year and a half, actually, since Hamilton declared this emergency. And uh, I know COVID has struck, but nonetheless, uh, there have been an awful lot of people right now are concerned about the, the fact that the city seems to be dragging their heels uh, on some of the initiatives that they should have been involved in already. Ian Borsak is a local resident and activist and uh, one of the project coordinators. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Ian, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me on, Bill. It's great to talk to you. Well, you, you had a chance to, to talk virtually, of course, through city councils yesterday. Uh, maybe you could give our listeners a rundown as, as to what the concerns are, where we should be and where we are, maybe. Yeah, so Bill, me and uh, my uh, executive director here at Environment Hamilton, Lin- Dr. Linda, Linda Lukasik, also delegated, along with um, John Davey, who is an uh, activist and member of the North End Neighborhood Association, as well as uh, local activist Cameron Kretsch. Um, and between me and Linda, on behalf of Environment Hamilton, we really wanted to communicate to council what we've already been communicating to staff privately um, and to our members and whoever will listen to us, really, um, is that we've, we've really lagged behind. Um, this is partially due to the pandemic, of course. Um, because of the pandemic, uh, the staff in the city of Hamilton who work on climate change efforts are technically public health uh, employees. Mm-hmm. So two out of the three individuals who work on climate change issues within the city of Hamilton were diverted away from those uh, from that work to work on pandemic response. Um, but on top of that, really looking at the report that we saw yesterday, um, we have a major concern that even if we didn't have the pandemic uh, and and we look at the delays that we've seen, which are, you know, about a year of delays, um, we're not really quite close to what the city needs to be at with regards to planning uh, on climate action. And, and that's an interesting point on this, and I, I think people, I hope, can grasp what was going on and what should be going on here, because uh, we get this. Okay, COVID has screwed everything up. We understand that, and, and, and the fact that they've reallocated staffing to this I, maybe is the only other option. I don't know. I'm sure that, uh, that you had that discussion with them yesterday. But the business of the city is still going on, and it's still working. Uh, and I know the goal a year and a half ago when the city council first talked about this was as that develops, uh, whether it's economic development, it's going to be growth, whether it's going to be building permits, uh, it has to be done through this lens. I mean, this is this has to be one of the filters, what, that, what the environmental filter. Are you comfortable that that is happening? We're not quite there yet. Um, so there's other cities that are able to do the work that we're demanding. Um, in Within the city of Hamilton right now, we're sort of still in that pre-plan phase. Uh, we're looking at developing frameworks and, and best practices. But while we're lagging behind and still talking about what, you know, what the best practice for planning is, um, planning staff are still moving forward with, uh, you know, a growth plan. And we're not entirely sure if the climate lens is being applied to that. There's also, you know, very specific policies and projects that other cities have started to implement or at least look at the costs of. Um, and in Hamilton, we don't have that yet. So, for example, the city of Vancouver, um, right now, their city council is having a really robust discussion about how much to spend on what programs to help them reach their emission level reductions. While in the city of Hamilton, um, there are a lot of projects that, you know, in my opinion, would be low-hanging fruit that are easy to implement. Um, that we just simply aren't acting on. So, 
you know, with regards to urban expansion, there there still continues to be work on looking at expanding lands in the El Frida area, which is what Dr. Linda Lacastic touched on. Um, but another example that is local is that here in Hamilton, for five years, we've been advocating for the city to develop a home energy retrofit program to help homeowners access loans to be able to, you know, improve their homes and reduce their hydro bill, which sure. I'm sure is top of mind for a lot of people in Hamilton very, right very now. Very topical, as you know. Yeah, Ian, the rates just went up this week. Yeah, and, and funnily enough, back in June, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities announced a round of grants to help municipalities implement programs, much like what we've proposed. And Hamilton decided not to apply for that grant, um, but the city of Burlington did, and they're going to be implementing a pilot project within, you know, within the next few months. And to me, the irony of this is that the city of Hamilton and Burlington are joined together as part of the Bay Area Climate Change Council. Mm-hmm. That's right. um, and the, you know, uh, and Environment Hamilton's very involved with that effort. And I'm actually on an implementation team that exists in part because of uh, financial support from the city of Hamilton. Um, and right now we're discussing how can we get the city of Hamilton to do what Burlington is already moving forward on, um, which, again, was was pitched to city council and staff nearly five years ago and staff received direction to work on this. So, you know, that's just one example. But I think really what our major concern is, is that we're really lagging behind um, in our view. Yes, the pandemic happened. But how do we ensure that going forward, more crises that happen don't divert resources away from the pandemic? How can we ensure that the city staff who are, in our opinion, doing a really great job with the resources they have, um, how can we ensure that they're able to reach the outcomes that we want to see, you know? And right now, we're not in that space. And unfortunately, I'm not convinced that a majority of city council is uh, is on that same page with us. Well, I got a, I got about a minute left, but I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to get your your perspective on what kind of commitment you actually heard yesterday. I I, I know where staff is on this. I mean, I've talked to some of the people in planning and and Jason Thorne and some others, and 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 they get this. I understand. And and they, you know, if they feel that their hands are tied because of COVID and they had to reallocate resources, well, that's something they're going to have to deal with because everybody, every city in the country is dealing with the same thing. And as you say, some are doing this better than others. But do you sense that there is a political commitment to continue this and to ramp this up to get to where we should be? I think there is uh, there's an interest, but there isn't quite that fundamental understanding that we really need to change the way we do things in a lot of cases. And it's not just about adding on, uh, you know, additional things and celebrating bike permits. When when the uh, climate emergency declaration was was made, that came along with uh, a commitment to targets of reaching climate emission, mm-hmm. uh, you know, emission target reductions. And right now, um, we don't even really have any targets. We don't have a plan of how to reach those targets or anything like that. And and that's where we should be right now, in our opinion. And compared to other cities, they're having a really robust conversation about about what level of commitment they're actually able to commit to financially. Um, but right now, that's not a discussion. Um, I know, you know, within the city of Hamilton... Uh, certain departments are doing a lot of great work. You know, personally speaking, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the work that Public Works is doing. They've been really active on implementing good policies and doing research. But then there's other departments that are either doing things that are explicitly um, opposed to the end goals we're looking for. Uh, but that's a result of, you know, council direction with regards to planning. Um, but, you know, I'm also not seeing the finance department really bring forward any proposals of, you know, forecasting modeling of how much these actions will cost. Well, and, we're going to we're gonna have to leave it above. If we're not be having these conversations, it's going to be really difficult to move yeah. forward on actually implementing policies that will benefit us and the environment. 
We're going to have to leave it there for now, but let's stay in touch about this and see just what kind of reaction you get. And uh, like I say, we'll judge counsel by their actions, not by their words, and see what's going on. Thanks for the time today, Ian. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Bill. Take care. Ian Borsak, of course, uh, who's uh, involved with Environment Hamilton, one of the project coordinators for this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.